Hey everyone, welcome back. I know I've been kind of out of it lately. I know you guys have probably been wondering where I am. And we'll get into that today with one of the stories that I have. Which is actually be my last one. That I'll be doing before I talk to one of my special guests today. Alright, I guess let's just, let's get into it. So, I gotta find it here. I don't know if I quite finished it. It's titled. I'll tell you that, it's titled. And I know this stirs off of our regular just our, our regular scheduled programming. But, yeah, so we're just not going to get into the other thing I had planned today. But I guess we can read a little bit of the book. Since I have to change my agenda now, but. We will just start with one I didn't quite want to start with, but I guess why not just start on a low note? You're not supposed to be happy, but this one isn't happy. Okay, so a little background. In July, I lost my dog, one of my amazing companions, and one of my many friends. Well, you can say, Logan, how, how can a dog be your friend? They, if they're part of your family, they're a friend. You welcome them. You basically adopt them. You take care of them. They're your life. And Rocky was my life for a very long time. I couldn't have asked for another amazing dog. But the tragedy didn't stop there. Unfortunately, I lost one of my friends in October to a car crash. I still was attached to Rocky, so when I found out this, it made things worse. I guess I'm fine now. I don't know. Some days are better than others. It's not like I have problems with mental health. I don't find in that category, I think. But whatever. I'm gonna get a tattoo in memory of my dog, but we'll see if that ends up happening or not. Okay. So this incomplete story so far. 
that I've been trying to work on for a while is called The Year My Dog Died. Dedicated to Rocky and Jacob. To begin with, loss, it's powerful. But nobody said it would be easy. The loss of a best friend, even if it is your dog, feels like hell no matter what. You dwell in their absence, their loss, and the sound. The lack of sound. They bring the joy they bring, the sound of the claws on tile or hardwood. Prologue. Where to begin? If anyone said death was easy, they're wrong. If death... I keep saying death. If death were easy, we wouldn't be sad. You see, the thing about death is if we spend less time worrying about it, and more time with the ones we know aren't going to be here as much, whether it is human or animal. Now, I'm not telling you death is easy. And I'm not telling you the story isn't going to break your heart. But in the end, death is inevitable. So as we go through the story, I want you to realize it's not so much about death, but it's about the time we spend with the loved ones, with the ones we love. Chapter 1 I remember it like it was yesterday. We were heading to a party. Over, heading over to a party. Heading to a party, and we were heading over to this friend's house. And their dog had just given birth to the last litter of puppies. We periodically would grab food from the table and we'd run around. I was hanging out with all the people I knew and my parents were just hanging around with, with whoever. And it was just like the night came to a close and that's when they said, which one do you want? I could have chosen any of them. They had the chocolate, they had the yellows, and then there were was a black lab. I knew I'm like this black lab just staring at me in the cutest as can be. I picked him up. I'm like, this is the one I want. They're like, what do you want to name him? And I'm like, I don't know. Now, I don't know how we came up with the name Rocky, but we did, and that night we took him home. We got home, and that's when the real work began, but without, but not without having fun. We played hide-and-seek around a chair in our living room. He'd go to the left side, and I'd get there before him and scare him. Well, not, like, scare him. I just want to make that clear. It was our little game. We made a game out of it. He'd come to the, back to the other side, 
I don't remember much of the early months with him. I remember the one time we went to the camper, and while we were on the water, he was on shore. He wasn't happy about this either, but somehow, through all his struggling, he managed to break free and end up in the water. And oh my gosh, that's my dog. But I also had to discipline him. But at the same time, I had to discipline him. Once we found another collar for him, tied him back up, or put him away, I can't, I couldn't quite remember. So that's why it says it. But that was his personality. He loved the other dogs. The one dog that my aunt and uncle had was his sister, just from a different litter. But they got along great. I don't remember much of the time that we had him in the early stages, but I'm sure there was time that I didn't leave his side, really. The one time I did leave him out of my sight was just like for a half a second, I actually just let go of him. My dad went down to my grandma's. Well, you can imagine how that went. As soon as he got out of my sight, he bolts the way that my dad was. Well, in the direction my dad was. Luckily, there was no cars, but I got in trouble. He enjoyed my grandfather. Every time he saw him, actually, any time he saw anyone. There was one time he chewed on the table leg, but other than that, we really couldn't leave him alone because we had taken him everywhere we went. He was a puppy. He actually slept with me and my parents in our room. Now, I want to explain this. So, when I, when we first got him, I slept in the same room as my parents because there was four of us in the house. My brother slept in the room I sleep in now, but when my brother left, I got his room. So there's a little room geography for you. But when I changed rooms about like second grade, he moved over there with me too. And he'd travel in between rooms. I don't remember much of the time. Between the time we got him and, well, really, 2018. Chapter 2. Let's start about the summer of 2018. It was around June when we had to go down for my brother's wedding, so we found a place for him to stay. I don't remember who we, who he stayed with, but... Sorry, fixing typos. But I would assume it was either my aunt or uncle or my grandma. Now, I couldn't wait to get back home, but 
before I can do that, I want to see the pointer. What it was all these years. Whatever it was. All these years running together. Now, I guess that comes with age. But when I got back, Rocky was with me again. And I love him. That's why I love I loved him. That's what I loved about him. He was my stretcher. And that's where I ended. And I really don't know how I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. But that was the year my dog died. Now, we are going to hop into an interview with my girlfriend, Chloe. So, just hang in tight, and we'll be right back after this. Wow. Well, hello. Hello. Hola. Soy Dora. Hmm. <laughs> That's kind of weird that it didn't go through on Snapchat, but went through on Instagram. Yeah, it said that it wouldn't, it didn't allow access on hmm. Snapchat, but it did allow it on through Instagram, so. Okay, I'm gonna just let it be. Okay. Itch, itch. So, how was your day? Good. I was lazy all day. Again. Same here for the most part. I think I finally made my decision. On what? On my tattoo. I was going back and forth between two. Oh. Now it should. It's getting my mom to take me. Oh. I'm going to see if we can do it tomorrow after work. Oh.
I end work at one o'clock. So I had to, my mom had to text Miss Davis and be like, oh, um, so now they scheduled him to work from 8 a.m. till 1 p.m. So what do you want me to do? And Miss Davis is like, well, um, he might as well just go to work. Yeah. But they do this stuff, and it's so irritating. It's just one day. And it's like, really? You gotta find a new job, man. I know. And your job, a new job, bad. Mm-hmm. It could have snowed a little more today. That that would have been nice. How about no? How about yeah? No. No. <laughs> I like driving when it's not snowing. But it, it, it's fun when there's snow around. No. Yes. It's not fun for me. Well, I'm without a car right now, so it's fun. My car is in a shop. My car is sitting, and it's about to go in the shop soon, so we could fix the windshield. What do you do to the windshield? Hmm? I didn't do anything. It just needs to be replaced. There's been a few cracks on it before we got it. Mm, looks like mine. This just feels weird and like not seeing you. <laughs> yeah, except this is going into an episode of the podcast. Oh. Roops? Yeah, th- this episode w- was basically just me reading something that I'm working on and then reading the first chapter of a Nicholas Sparks book. So get ready. Are you still okay, there? We're good now. Yeah, my phone said that it needed to connect again, so it was ready about to, like, end the call, but it's fine now. Internet's fine. I think. Possibly. Shakur Shakur Internet. It sure sure is okay. Probably. I think my, the best part I liked about filming this, or taping this, not really filming it, 
this podcast podcast episode was when I got into the book, like halfway through, I started speaking in a southern accent. <laughs> well, it's basically set in New Orleans. And this guy just ends up traveling back to his hometown. Mm. It, it, it's nothing but southerners, so, you know. True. It's an interesting book. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give it away. Not I, yet. Well, it, it's basically the title of it is The Best of Me. They made a movie about it a couple years ago. With nice. The, with the actor from Hop. I'm pretty sure. I can't think of the name of the actor. Or not the name. The... I can't. But I've watched the movie. I just have to read books. That's fun. Excuse me. Yes, excuse you. I don't know what you did, so. I burp. Oh, how dare you. <laughs> I started watching this new show. Mm-hmm. It's a Netflix show. Mm-hmm. It's called The Crown. This. It's about the royal family. Yes. I know have this. You, have you watched it? Yes. Well, then I shouldn't explain. There's no need to explain. There's no need to explain because you've told me about this before and I've been watching it. Have I talked about this? Yes, you have. Twice, actually. Are you sure it wasn't the documentary? No, you've told me about it. Apparently, I need better memory. Yes, you do. Well, you weren't supposed to agree. (laughs) I did. That hurt my feelings, okay? You hurt my feelings. I'm going to go curl up in a ball now. Okay. <laughs> so I found out something yesterday after I went to Pulp. Uh-oh. Well, actually, on my way to Pulp. Oh. One of our favorite people that goes to my school. Mm-hmm. It, it's not Kennedy. I, I know. It's the one that transferred from Central. Oh, Garrett? Mm-hmm. Apparently, he, uh, he threatened... Oh, what he did? He threatened to shoot up the school.
and there was other people involved also. Basically, the whole class of the whole fresh was it the whole freshman class? Yeah, I think was involved with it too. Oh my god. Yep. Would you like to come over to Maslin? Because we do not do that. Nah. No. I'll, I'll, stick. I'll stick with my school. But I think my mom that today, she goes, he was always a loose cannon. I'm like, we just got lucky. She, he didn't actually bring a gun. We're, we're like, we're, we're lucky he didn't bring a gun to school, really. Yeah. You're definitely lucky. Yeah. <sighs> mm. Would do that. It's just that he got a bunch of freshmen to do it as well. Well, they, I don't. I don't know how it corresponds. Really, I don't know what happened. I just got things from my cousin. I don't want to know. Neither do I. But apparently, one of the seniors overheard him talking about it. Oh. So that was hilarious. It is hilarious. It is. This podcast. Man, so lovely. This podcast episode is going to be an hour and something minutes long. Well, I had to do a lot of pausing and then resuming and then just ending one segment and splitting into mm-hmm. two because the chapter was really long. Oh. So you had to do a part two? Yeah. I found a stopping point and was like, okay, this is my stopping point. Mm-hmm. And then when this goes out to process, then I'll go post it. Which is fun. Mm-hmm. I didn't put an ad in this. I haven't put an ad in any of my other podcast episodes because it doesn't go straight to my bank account. Yeah. And I don't feel like setting it up to go to my bank account. Because right now there's like two cents in the thing. Maybe later. Mm. I took down my Christmas decorations. Well, I took down the Christmas tree yesterday. It only took me three weeks. Oh, jeez. I just really didn't want to take it down and I really just didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I don't want to do anything tomorrow. So that means you don't want to come over and hang out? Well, we could do that, yeah. 
if you wanted to hang out. And I'd be able to stay over longer, too. Because I don't have my car right now. So my mom will be forced to come pick me up. If not, I'm I can drive. Yeah. If the roads aren't bad. But I'll talk to my mom in the morning. Yeah. That's the bad part. I'll talk to my mom about the tattoo situation. That doesn't go over. I'll switch the subject. (laughs) And be like, hey, Chloe said, ask me if I wanted to come over last night. So are you planning on trying to get the tattoo tomorrow that day or uh, doing the appointment? I'm not sure. I kind of want to get it tomorrow. Well, you can do an appointment online, too. Yeah, you'll have to pay like 50 bucks. For the appointment. Yeah. I would just rather get We found that out. Rather just fork out the money. That day. That depends on if the artist, the artist that I can be able to do it that day. True. I hope you get the artist that I got because he's he's really sweet. Who'd you go? God, I can't remember his name. I don't have the paper anymore for who it is. Dang it. <laughs> we got a computer here. We can look it up. The beauty and magic sure. of the internet. I'm just glad that you're going to the same place that I got mine. It's the only place I can go to. True. It's the only place. Now that- I can be able to go anywhere. Well. Soon. When, you're when I turn 18, I don't know. I'm, that's in a few months, dude. Don't remind me. What, that I'm old? You, you know what my grandpa would say? He, what? When he said you were a year older than me, he goes, so she robbed the cradle mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And that's what he always says about my grandma. She goes, he goes, she's older than me, so she robbed the cradle. My parents say that since I'm a year older than you, I'm like, that you're dating a mm. Nice. That, that I'm a year older. <laughs> I get the joke, but I'm just like, really? Pretty funny. It is funny. (laughs) My friends tell me it all the time, and it just gets annoying. I bet. Especially Taylor. Mm. She she calls me an old lady all the time because I'm older than all of my friends. (laughs) 
and I hate right. it. So we got Rich Hilton, Brian McManany, Curtis Webb, Scott Guapone, and butchering these last names. Yes, you are. Eddie Dickey. <laughs> Brett Van. And Aaron Brooks. That's all of them. Then you go into the piercings. Yeah, I'm not happy. Hey, Mom. Who's the person that did my tattoo? Thanks, Dad. That helps. We don't have the name of the guy, honestly. It's whoever they assigned it to. Okay. Why? Because Logan's getting one. Because Logan's planning on getting one tomorrow. Oh, okay. Because he doesn't want to do the uh, do the appointment. Because remember, we had to pay like fifty bucks. Yeah. Yeah. We had to do a down payment. Yeah. So my parents do not know. I heard. Yeah, you can make an appointment for tattoos on the website. Yeah, just it's 50 bucks, email. which is just for the down payment. So it'll help out. Yeah, I, I, the thing is, it asked, there's like a box that says, please describe the tattoo you would like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Copy and paste the picture. There you go. There you That's go. it right there. And then with like, name under the paw print. Mm. Oh, gonna... Are you putting up the date when he passed? No. Just the uh, Oh, just say no. We might not have Stella for any much longer soon. No. Because, um, you know how we said that there's this tumor that's hanging down on her belly? Yeah. Well, it's and there's a gash. Like a really big opening oh. that she keeps Ow. biting. Mm. Yeah. She's been really skinny too. Ooh. So we might not have her much longer. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, I was crying today. That was nice. I found the very depressing side of TikTok. Uh-oh. I found the sad dog videos. Oh. That's what get, gets ya. Mm-hmm. Shoot, I was crying earlier today as well. Why were you crying? Uh... Hmm. 
I don't really know. Was it just spontaneous? A little bit, but also it was kind of just coming out. I, I, I don't know why, but I just don't know how to explain it well enough. You don't need to if you don't know how to explain it. Well, I don't want to say it on here is the issue. Yep, that's fine. If I call you, then then that then I'll tell you. Yeah. But mm. crying today. Out in public, should I say. Or not oh. technically out in public. I was I was in a bathroom crying. That's the explanation I'm saying. I don't think that needs any context. Yep. So, how was dinner? It was really good. We- mm-hmm. That place is so good. Mm-hmm. Birthday. Ooh, oh, wait, sorry, I should The number. The big four. <laughs> oh. Yep. Because there was really good reviews on there, and I wanted to go because my friend's parents actually own. And I got to see her tonight when it was really busy. I bet it was being a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. There's like an hour-long wait if you didn't have a reservation. Did you have a reservation? Yep, we did. It still took long, too. Yeah. Everyone and their brother was probably like... Yep. Well, it didn't help that there was people at our table just sitting there talking almost the whole time. Mm, nice. So there was that, and but we finally got to sit down and eat, and it was really cool. The inside of it actually looks really nice. Is that where the sugar bowl used to be? Yep, literally. Hmm. It has that little outside area where I think it's where the angel wings were when we got our pictures done. Ah. Ugh. We have to do... Well, my grandma brought up senior pictures last Sunday. Yeah, my parents have... Before you know it, you're going to have to do senior pictures. I'm like, my parents and I really haven't discussed senior pictures, so. Mm-hmm. I told my parents, like, I, shut up. I don't want to be a senior yet. Well, I was talking about my mom. I'm like, well, 
where do we want to go? Like, what are we doing? My mom's like, I'm like, maybe we can go to the West End Studios and they can do my senior picture. Hey, there you go. But I would love to get it. I would love to get it like a senior picture done with my letterman jacket. So. Mm. But that may not. My parents have a buddy. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No. You didn't interrupt me one bit. I'm just sitting here playing with Buddy. Mm. I'm just really hoping I can do that. It's like my mom wants to do it, but at the same time, she's afraid to do it. What, seeing your pictures? No, my tattoo. Oh. She was like all aboard with it. And now we're just only dragging our feet. So she was all on board with it from the start, and now she's not? I'm not sure. I don't know what she says. I can get it. But I don't want to waste my life away. I'm getting mm. it either. I give you good luck. Yeah, me too. Just, just drink a lot of water and eat something before you go. Because they really push that with people before they get their tattoos. Because you... Does it like dehydrate your skin or something? Or what? Like, why, why do they insist on that? So you don't pass out, because when you pass out, that's it. You're done. That's why they want you to eat water and get a good night's rest so you can be all good for this. Wow. Okay. I'll be well, that my parents wow. pushed with me. I swear. I'm going to go in there tomorrow and I'm be like, I thought you said you couldn't work till like 3 to 8. And I'll be like, well, <laughs> I changed my plans. Yeah, I changed my mind. Well, I didn't even tell them, never mind. I'm coming in from... Oh. They have me working to one o'clock, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" I'm like these idiots. Like, really? I work with a bunch of idiots. Yes. One of my coworkers is. So have to say it. Yes. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Hey, you should work at the pulp. A lot of Tesla kids work there. Mm. I don't want to work with Gavin. <laughs> I was in there. I was just pointing and putting that as a joke. I was in there yesterday. 
I liked it. I ran into my ex-neighbor on the way in, which was kind of weird. But... Oh. Ew. Other than that, All I did was go out shopping with my mom. Since nobody wanted to go out except for her, and I wanted to go out too. My parents went so shopping. Like That's in the house. Hmm. Well, do you want to end this and talk on Instagram? Yeah. All right. See you on Instagram. All right. See ya. Hmm. Love. What do we know about that? Well, since I'm a 16 year old, I don't know much. But I bet there's some of you out there that know a lot. But, but let's see if Nicholas Sparks knows a lot about love. He writes a lot of romance, doesn't he? Hmm. You have reached Waking Up With Logan. Let's dive into The Best of Me. The Best of Me by Nicholas Sparks. Well, I don't think we need to know about copyright. I'm not gonna read it. For Scott Schwimmer. A wonderful friend. Chapter One. For Dawson Cole, the hallucinations began after the explosion on the platform, on the day he should have died. In the fourteenth years, oh, fourteen, fourteen years he'd worked. On oil rigs. He thought he'd seen it all. In 1997, he'd watched as a helicopter lost control as it was about to land. It crashed onto the dock, erupting in blistering in a blistering fireball, and he'd ex received second-degree burns on his back as he attempted a rescue. Thirteen people, most of them in the helicopter at the time, had died Four years later, after a crane on the platform collapsed, a piece of flying metal debris the size of a baseball nearly took his head off. In 2004, he was one of the few workers remaining on the rig when Hurricane Ivan slammed into it with winds gusting over 100 miles an hour and waves large enough to make him wonder whether to grab a parachute in case the rig collapsed. But there were only dangers. There were other dangers as well. People slipped, parts snapped, and cuts and bruises were 
a way of life among the crew. Dawson had seen more broken bones than he could count, two plagues of food poisoning that sickened the entire crew. And two years ago, in 2007, he'd watched a supply ship start to sink as it pulled away from the rig, only to be rescued at the last minute by a nearby Coast Guard cutter. The explosion was something different, because there was no oil leak in this instance. The safety mechanics mechanisms in their backups prevented a major spill. The story barely made the national news and was largely forgotten within a few days. But for those who were there, including him, it was the stuff of nightmares. Up till that point, the morning had been routine. He'd been monitoring the pumping systems when one of the oil storage tanks suddenly exploded before he could even process what had happened. The impact of the explosion sent him crashing into a neighboring shed. After that, fire was everywhere. The entire platform, crusted with grease and oil, quickly became an inferno that engulfed the whole facility. Two more large explosions rocked the rig even more violently. Dawson remembered dragging a few bodies farther from the fire. But a fourth explosion bigger than the others launched him into the air a second time. He had a vague memory of falling toward the water, a fall that for all intents and purposes, should have killed him. The next thing he knew, he was floating in the Gulf of Mexico, roughly 90 miles south of Vermilion Bay, Louisiana. 90 miles south of... Like most of the others, he had, hadn't had time to don his survival suit or reach for a flotation device. But in between swells, he saw a dark-haired man wave in the distance, as if signaling Dawson to swim toward him. Dawson struck out in that direction, fighting the wave, ocean waves. Exhausted and dizzy, his clothes and boots dragged him down, and as his arms and legs began to give out, he knew he was going to die. He thought he'd been getting close, though. The spells made it impossible to know for sure. At that moment, he spotted a lone life preserver floating among some nearby debris. Using the last of his remaining strength, he latched on. Later, he learned that he was in the water for almost four hours and drifted nearly a mile from the rig before being picked up by a supply ship that had rushed to the scene. He was pulled on board, carried below decks, and reunited with the other survivors. Dawson was shivering from hypothermia, and he was dazed. Though his vision was blurry, he was later diagnosed with a moderate concussion. He recognized how lucky he'd been. He saw men with vicious burns on their arms and shoulders and others bleeding from their ears. Or nursing broken bones. He knew most of them by name. There were only so many places for a 
people to go on the rig. It was essentially a small village in the middle of the ocean. And everyone made it to the cafeteria or the recreation room or gym sooner or later. One man, however, looked oddly, vaguely familiar. A man who seemed to be staring at him from across the crowded room. Dark-haired and maybe 40 years old. He was wearing a blue windbreaker that someone on the ship had probably lend him. Dawson thought he looked out of place, more like an office worker than a roughneck. The man waved, suddenly triggering memories of the figure he had spotted earlier in the water. It was him, and all at once, Dawson felt the hairs on the back of his neck rise before he could identify the source of his uneasy. A blanket was thrown over his shoulders, and he was ushered to a spot in the corner where a medical officer waited to examine him. By the time he by the time he sat back down, the dark-haired man was gone. Over the next hour, more survivors were brought aboard. But as his body began to warm, Dawson started to wonder about the rest of the crew. Men he'd worked with for years were nowhere to be seen. Later, he would learn that 24 people were killed. Most, but not all, of the bodies were eventually found. While he recovered in the hospital, <laughs> Dawson couldn't help thinking about the fact that some families Dawson couldn't stop thinking about the fact that some families had no real way to say goodbye. He had trouble sleeping since the explosion, not because of any nightmares, but because he couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. He felt haunted, as ridiculous as that sounded. Day and night, he occasionally caught a glimpse of movement from the corner of his eye. But whenever he turned, there was no one anywhere. There was never anyone or anything there that could explain it. He wondered if he was losing his mind. The doctor suggested he was having a post-traumatic reaction to the stress of the accident, and that his brain might still be healing from the concussion. It made, made sense and sounded logical, but it didn't feel right to Dawson. He nodded. Anyway, the pills the doctor gave him a prescription for sleeping pills, but Dawson never bothered to fill it. He was given a paid leave of absence for six months while the legal wheels began to grind. Three weeks later, the company offered him a settlement and he signed the papers. By then, he'd already been contacted by half a dozen attorneys, all of them racing to be the first to file a class action suit. But he didn't want the hassle. He took the settlement offer and deposited the check on the day it arrived. While enough money, with enough money in his account to make some people think he was rich, he went to his bank and wired most of it to an account in the Cayman Islands. Why does it know the Cayman Islands? 
whatever. From there, it was forwarded to a corporate account in Panama that had been opened with minimum paperwork. Before being wired to its final destination, the money, as always, was virtually impossible to trace. He kept only enough for the rent and a few other expenses. He didn't need much, nor did he want much. He lived in a, wide, a single wide trailer at the end of the dirt road on the outskirts of New Orleans. New Orleans! And people who saw it probably assumed it was primary redeeming feature. That its primary redeeming feature was that it hadn't flooded during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. With plastic siding that was cracked and fading, the trailer squatted on stacked cinder blocks. Perm temporary foundation that had somehow become permanent over time. It had a single bedroom and a bath, a cramped living area, and a kitchen with barely enough room to house a mini-fridge. Insulation was almost non-existent. Humidity had warped the floors over the years, making it seem as if he were always walking on a slate. The linoleum loom the kit like linoleum. Why well, couldn't say that? Obviously, I've never seen the word linoleum. Whatever, we're not gonna say it again. Anyways, in the kitchen was cracking in the corners. The minimal carpet was threadbare, and he furbished. Furbished the narrow space with items he'd picked up over the years at thrift stores. Not a single photograph adored the walls, though he'd lived there for almost 15 years. It was less a home than place where he happened to eat and sleep and take his showers. Despite its age, it was almost always pristine as the homes in the Garden District. Dawson was always a, always had been a bit of a neat freak. Twice a year, he repaired cracks and caulked seams to keep rodents and other and insects at bay. And whenever he prepared to return to the rig, he scrubbed the kitchen and bathroom floors with disinfectant and emptied the cardboards of any the cupboards of anything that might spoil or mold. He generally worked thirty days on, followed by thirty days off, and anything that wasn't in a can would go bad in less than a week, especially during the summer. Upon his return, he scrubbed the place from top to bottom again while airing it out. Doing this 
doing his best to get rid of the musty smell. It was quiet, though, and that was really all he needed. He was a quarter mile off the main road, and the nearest neighborhood was even farther away than that. After a month on the rig, that was exactly what he wanted. One of the things he'd never gotten used to on the rig was the endless noise. Unnatural noise from cranes continuously repositioning supplies to helicopters, to the pumps, to the endless pounding of metal on metal. The cataphony never stopped. Rigs pumped oil around the clock, which meant that even when Dawson tried to sleep, the clamor continued. He tried to tune it out while he there. But whenever he returned to the trailer, he was struck by the almost impenetrable silence. When the sun was so high in the sky in the mornings, he could hear birdsong drifting from the trees. And in the evenings, he'd listened in the way the the way the crickets and frogs begin to sometimes synchronize to the, the rhythm a few minutes after the sun went down. It was unusually soothing, but even now and then the sound made him think of home, and when that happened, he would retreat indoors, forcing the memories away. Instead, he tried to focus on the simple routines that dominated his life when he was back on solid ground. Excuse me. He ate, he slept, he ran, and lifted weights and tinkered on his car. He took long, wandering drives. Nowhere in particular. Now and then he went fishing, he read every night, and wrote an occasional letter to Tuck Holstetter. That was it. He owned neither a TV, or sorry, a television, nor a radio. And though he had a cell phone, only numbers were listed in the contact list. Oh, sorry. Only work numbers were listed in the contact list. He picked up groceries and essentials and stopped at the bookstore once a month. But never. But other than that, he never ventured in New Orleans. In 14 years, he'd never been to Bourbon Street or strolled through the French Quarter. He had never sipped coffee at the Café Dumont or had a hurricane at La Tiffy's Black Shop Bar. Instead of visiting a gym, he worked out behind the trailer beneath a warped tarp he'd strung behind his home and nearby trees. He didn't go to the movies or kick back at a friend's place while the Saints played on Sunday afternoons. He was 42 years old and hadn't been on a date since he was a teenager. Most people wouldn't or couldn't have lived their lives that way. But they didn't show him. They didn't know who he had been or what he had done, and he wanted to keep it that way. Then out of the blue, on a warm, 
afternoon in mid-June, he received a phone call, and memories of the past rose anew. Dawson had been on leave for almost nine weeks. For the first time in nearly 20 years, he was finally going home. The thought made him uneasy, but he knew he had no choice. Tucker had been more than just a friend. He had been like a father, and in silence, as he reflected on the year that had been the turning point of his life, Dawson saw a flash of movement once more, and when he turned, there was nothing there at all, and he wondered again whether he was going crazy. The call had come from Morgan Tanner, an attorney in Oriental, North Carolina, who informed that Talk Halstetter had passed away. There are arrangements best handled in person, Tanner explained. Dawson's first instinct after hanging up was to book his flight in a room at a local bed and breakfast, then call a florist and arrange for a delivery. The following morning, after locking the front door to the trailer, Dawson walked around toward the tiny shed where he kept his car. It was Thursday, June 18, 2009, and he carried with him the only suit he owned in a duffel bag he had packed in the middle of the night when he hadn't been able to sleep. He unlocked the padlock and rolled up the door, watching sunlight stream onto the car he had been restoring and repairing ever since high school. It was a 1969 Fastback, the kind of car that turned heads when Nixon was president and turned heads today. It looked as if it had rolled off the assembly line and the other years countless strangers had offered to buy it from Dawson had turned them down. It's no more than just a car, he told him, without further explanation. Tuck would have understood exactly what he meant. Dawson tossed the duffel bag on the passenger seat and laid the suit on top of it before sliding between the seats. When he turned the key and came to life with a loud rumble, and he eased the car on the gravel before hopping out to lock the shed. As he did, he ran through a mental checklist, making sure he had everything. Two minutes later, he was on the main road, and half an hour at that, he was parked on long-term lot at New Orleans Airport. He hated leaving the car, but he had no choice. He collected his things before starting towards the terminal, where a ticket was waiting for him at the airline counter. The airport was crowded, men and women walking arm in arm, family, families off to visit grandparents uh, or days in the world, students shuttling between homeschool businesses, travelers rolled their carry-ons behind them, jabbering on the cell phone. He turned stood in the slow-moving line and waited until a spot opened at the counter and he showed his tick his identification and answered the basic security questions before being handed his boarding passes and there was a single layover in Charlotte a little more than an hour not bad once he landed in New Bern and picked up his rental car, he had another 40 minutes on the road, assuming there wasn't any delays or 
he'd been oriental by late afternoon. Until he took his seat on the plane, Dawson hadn't realized how tired he was. He wasn't sure what time he'd finally fallen asleep. The last time he checked it, it had been almost four. But he figured he'd sleep on the plane. Besides, it wasn't as though he had much to do once he got to town. He was an only child. His mother ran off when he was three, and his dad had done the world a favor by drinking himself to death. Dawson hadn't talked to anyone in his family in years, nor did he intend to renew their acquaintance now. Quick trip in and out, he'd do what he had to do and didn't plan on hanging around any longer than they, he had to. He might have, he might have been raised in Oriental, but he'd never really belonged there. Oriental, he knew was nothing like the cheery image advertised by the area visitors signs. For most people, he who spent an afternoon there, Oriental came across as quirky little town. Popular with artists, poets, retirees who wanted nothing more to spend their time twi their twilight years sailing on the new New Use River. It had the qu requisite quaint town downtown, complete with antique stores, smart galleries. That's art galleries. And hired coffee shops and place had more weekly vegetables than seemed possible for a town fewer than a thousand people, but the real Oriental, the one he knew, had known as a child and young man, was the one inhabited by families with ancestors who had resided in the area since colonial times, like Judge McCall and Sheriff Harris and Eugene Wilcock and the Collar and Bennett families. There. They were the only. They were the ones who'd always owned the land. And farmed the crops. And sold the timber of the. And established the businesses there. There were the powerful, invincible undercurrent in town that had always been theirs, and they kept it that way, the way they wanted. Dawson found that firsthand when he was 18, and then again at 23 when he finally left for good. It wasn't easy for being a call anywhere in Pamlico County, Oriental in particular. As far as he knew, every coal in the family tree, going back as far as his great-grandfather, had spent time in prison. Various members of the family had been convicted of everything from assault to battery to arson, attempted murder, and murder itself. And the rocky, wooded homestead that housed the extended family was like country with its own roads. A handful of ramshackle cabins, single wide trailers, and Hunk Barnes dotted the property that his family called home. And unless he had no choice, even the sheriff avoided the place. Hunters 
gave the land a wide berth, rightly assuming that the trespassers will be shot on sight, saying it wasn't simply a warning but a promise. The coals were moonshiners and drug dealers, alcoholics, wife beaters, abusive fathers and mothers and thieves and pimps and all above. Pathological violent, according to an article that had been published in a now defunct magazine, they were at one point regarded at the most as the most vicious, vengeance-driven family east of Raleigh. Dawson's father was no exception. He had spent most of his 20s and early 30s in prison for various offenses that included stabbing a man with an ice pick after the man had cut him off in traffic. He'd been tired in a court. He had been tried and acquitted twice for murder after witnesses had vanished and even the rest of the family knew enough to rifle him up. Well, say, they were not to rifle him up. How or why his mother ever married him was a question that Dawson couldn't begin to answer. He didn't blame his mom for running off for most of his childhood. He didn't want to run off too. Nor did he blame her for not taking him. Men in the call family were strangely prioritary about their offspring, and he knew he had no doubt his father would have hunted his mom down and taken him back anyways. He told Dawson as a much more than once, and had Dawson known better than to ask his father what he had done, and had his mother refused to give him up, Dawson already knew the answer. He wondered how many members of his family were still living on the land when he'd finally left in addition to his father. Well, there'd been a grandfather, four uncles, three aunts, six cousins. By now, with the cousins grown up and having kids of their own, there are probably more. But he had no desire to find out. That might have been the world he'd grown up in. But like Oriental, he never really belonged to them either. Maybe his mom, whoever she was, had something to do with it. But he wasn't like them. Alone among his cousins, he never gotten in fights at school, he pulled down decent grades, he stayed away from the drugs and the booze, and as a teenager, he avoided his cousins. When they cruised into town looking for trouble, usually telling them that he had to check on his still or helpless, help disable a car that someone in the family had stolen, he kept his head out and his best to maintain as low as a profile as he could. It was a balancing act. The Coles might have been a band of criminals, but that didn't mean they were stupid. And Dawson knew instinctively that he had to hide his differences as he could. He was probably the only kid in, in his school's history who studied hard enough to fail a test on purpose. And he caught him taught himself how to doctor his reports, so he appeared worse than they really were. He knew. He learned how to secretly empty a can of beer the moment someone had his back turned by poking a neck with a knife. 
and when he used work as an excuse to avoid his cousins, he often toiled until the middle of the night. That was successful for a while, but over time, cracks appeared in the facade. One of his teachers mentioned to a drinking buddy of his dad's that he was the best student in his class. Aunt and uncles began to notice. That he, alone among the cousins, was staying within the bounds of the law and a family that prized loyalty, conformity above all else. He was different. And there was no worse sign. It infuriated his father. Though he'd been beaten regularly since he was a toddler, his father avoided his brother favored belts and straps. By the time he was 12, the beatings were became personal. His father would have beaten him until Dawson's back chest and were black and blue. Then returned an hour later, turning his attention to the boy's face and legs. Teachers knew what was happening, but afraid for their own families, they ignored it. The sheriff pretended he couldn't see the bruises and welts and his daughter walked home from school. The rest of the family had no problem with it. Abe and Crazy Ted, his older cousins, oh, jumped him more than once, beating him as bad as his father. Abe, because he thought Dawson had it coming. Crazy Ted, just because of the hell of it. Abe, tall and broad, with fists the size of the ham bones, was violent and short-tempered, but smarter than he let on. Crazy Ted, on the other hand, was born in, in kindergarten. He stabbed a classmate with a pencil in a fight over a Twinkie. And before he, before he was finally expelled in fifth grade, he'd sent another classmate to the hospital. Rumor had it, he'd killed a junkie while still a teenager. Dawson figured it was best not to fight back. Instead, he learned to cover up while absorbing the blows until his cousins finally grew bored or tired or both. He didn't, he didn't however, following the family's business and grew more resolute that he never would. Over time, he learned that the more he screamed, the more his father beat him. So he kept his mouth shut. As violent as his dad was, he was a bully, and Dawson knew instinctively the bullies fought only the battles that they knew they could win. He knew there could would only come a time when he'd be strong enough to fight back. When he would no longer be afraid of his father. As the blows rained down on him, he tried to imagine the courage his mother had shown by cutting all ties to the family. He did his best to hasten the process. He tied a sack filled with rags to a tree and punched it for hours a day. He hefted rocks and engine parts as often as he could. He did, he did pull-ups, push-ups, and sit-ups throughout the day. He put on 10 pounds of muscle before turning 13 and another 20 by 14. He was growing taller as well by 15, he was nearly as tall as father. One night, a month after he turned 16, his father came at him with a belt. After a night of drinking, Dawson reared up, ripped it from his father's grasp, told his father that if he ever touched him again, he'd kill him. 
That night, with nowhere else to go, he took refuge in Tuck's truck. Well, sorry, Tuck's garage. When Tuck found him the following morning, Dawson asked him for a job. There was no reason for him to help Dawson, who was not only a stranger, but cold as well. Tuck wiped his hands on the bandana. He kept it in his back pocket, trying to read it before reaching for his cigarettes. At the time, he was only 61 years old, a literaler of two years. When he spoke, Dawson could smell the alcohol in his breath, and his voice was raspy with residue of the unfiltered camels he smoking. Since he was a child, his accent, like Dawson's, was pure country. I figured you can strip him up. But you know anything about putting them back in? Yes, sir, Dawson had answered. You got schooling today? Yes, sir. Then you be back here right afterwards, and I'll see how you do. Dawson showed up and did his best to prove his worth. After work, it rained most of the evening, and when Dawson sneaked back in the garage to take refuge from the storm, Tuck was waiting for him. Tuck didn't say anything. Instead, he drew hard on his camel. Slinting at Dawson without speaking a word, and eventually went back into the house. Dawson never spent another night on the family land. Tuck didn't make him pay rent. Dawson bought his own food as months rolled on. He began to think about the future for the first time in his life. He saved as much as he could, splurging only to buy the fastback from a junkyard and gallon-sized jugs of sweet tea from the diner. He repaired the car in the evenings after work while drinking the tea, and he fantasized about going to college. Sometimes Nicole had ever done it. Actually, something Nicole had never done. He considered joining the military or just renting his own place, but before he could make any decisions to his father showed up unexpectedly in the garage. He brought Crazy Ted and A with him, both of them carried baseball bats, and he could see the outline of a knife in Ted's pocket. Give me the money you've been earning, his father said, without preamble. No, Dawson answered. I knew you'd say that, boy. That's why I got Ted and Abe here. They can beat it out of you, and I'll take it anyway. Or you can give me what you owe for running off. Dawson said nothing. His father picked at his gums with a toothpick. See all it would take for me to end his little life of yours. There's a crime out there in town. Maybe a burglary. Maybe a fire. Who knows? After day, we just plant some evidence, place an anonymous call to the sheriff, and let the law do the work. You're alone out here. And that, you ain't got no alibi. And for all I care, you can run away for the rest of your life around by iron and concrete. Won't bother me none at all. So why don't you hand it over?
Dawson knew his father wasn't bluffing. Keeping his face expressionless, he took the money from his wallet after his father counted the bills. He spat the toothpick on the ground and grinned. I'll be back next week. Dawson may do. He managed to squirrel away a little bit of the money he had earned to continue his repairs on the fat bag and buy the sweet tea. But most of his money went to his father, though he suspected that Tuck knew what was going on. Tuck never said anything directly to him, not because he was afraid of the coals, but because it wasn't his business. Instead, he began cooking dinners that were just a bit too large for him to eat on his own. Got some, got some left if you want it, he said after walking a plate out the garage. More than not, he'd go back inside without another word. That was the kind of relationship they had. <laughs> Excuse me. And Dawson respected it. Dawson respected Tuck in his own way. Tuck had become the most important person in his life. And Dawson couldn't imagine anything else that would come that would change that until the day Amanda Collar entered his world. Though he knew had known he'd known of Amanda for years, there was only one high school in Palimpico County, and he'd gone to the school with her most of his life. It wasn't until the spring of his junior year that they exchanged more than a few words for the first time. He always thought she was pretty, but he wasn't alone in that. She was popular, the kind of girl who sat surrounded by friends at a table in the cafeteria while boys veed for her attention. And she was not only, only class president, but a cheerleader as well. From the fact that she was rich and she was inaccessible to him, as an actress on television, he never say a word to her until they were finally paired as lab partners in chemistry. As they labored over test tubes and studied together for the test that semester, he realized that she was nothing like he had imagined she could be. First, she was a collar, and he a coal, which seemed to make no difference to her, which surprised him. She had a quick, unbroiled laugh. And when she smiled, there was a mischievous hint about that, as she, though she knew something that no one else did. Her hair was a rich honey blonde, her eyes the color of the summer skies. Sometimes as they scribbled equations in her, their notebooks, she would often touch his arm to get his attention. The feeling would linger for hours. In the afternoons, as he worked in the garage, he'd often find he couldn't think about her. He couldn't stop thinking about her. It took him until spring before he finally worked up the courage to ask if he could buy her an ice cream at the end of the year approached. To spend more time and more time together. That was 1984. He was 17 years old. By the time summer ended, he knew he was in love. And when the air turned crisp and the autumn leaves drifted to the ground in ribbons of red and yellow, 
He was certain he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. As crazy as that sounded, they stayed together the following years, growing even closer and spending even more possible moments together. With Amanda, it was easy for him to be himself with Amanda. He was contained for the first time in his life. Even now, final year together was sometimes all he could think about. Or more accurately, Amanda was all he could think about. On the plane, Dawson settled into the flight. He had a window seat about halfway back next to a young woman, red hair, mid-thirties, long-limbed and tall. Not exactly his type, but pretty enough. He leaned, she leaned into him as she searched for her seat belt and smiled in apology. Dawson nodded, but sent, sensing that she was about to strike up a conversation. He stared at the, out the window. He watched the luggage car pull around the aircraft, drifting as he often did into the distant memories of Amanda. He pictured times when they went swimming in the noose. That first summer, their bodies slick as they brushed up against each other. Or how she used to perch on the bench while he worked on his car at Tess Garage. Arms wrapped around her drawn-up knees, making him think that he wanted nothing more than to see her sitting there. Just like that forever. In August, when he finally got his car to run for the first time, he took her to the beach. There, they laid on their towels, fingers intertwined, as they talked about of their favorite books, the movies they enjoyed, their secrets and dreams for the future. They argued as well, and then Dawson caught a glimpse of her fury nature. Their disagreements but weren't constant, but they they weren't infrequent either. Remarkable no matter how quickly things flared up, they almost always ended equally fast. Sometimes it was about little things. Amanda was nothing if not opinionated. They bicker furiously for a while. Usually without any sort of resolution. Even those instances where he became truly ugly, he couldn't help admiring her honesty. And honesty rooted in the fact that she cared more about him than anyone else in his life. Aside from Tuck, no one else who what she saw. No one else no one understood what she saw in him. Though they initially tried to conceal the relationship Oriental was a small town, and people inevitably began to whisper. One by one, her friends withdrew, and it was only a matter of time before her parents found out he was a call and she was a caller. And that was more than enough cause for dismay. At first, they clung to the hope that Amanda was simply going through a rebellious phase, and they'd try to ignore it. When that didn't work, things got harder for Amanda. They took away her driver's license and prohibited her from using the phone. In fall, she was grounded for weeks at a time and forbidden to go out on weekends. 
never once was Dawson allowed into their home. And the only time her father ever spoke to him, he called Dawson a worthless piece of white trash. His mother begged me into this ended, and by December her father had stopped speaking to her altogether. The hospitality surrounding them only drew Amanda and Dawson closer together. And when Dawson began to take her hand in public, Amanda held tight, daring anyone to tell her to let go. But Dawson wasn't naive as much as she meant to him. He always had the sense that they were on borrowed time. Everything and everyone seemed stacked against them. When his father found out about Amanda, he would ask about her when he came to collect Dawson's wages, though there was only over telling menacing in his tone. Simply hearing say him say her name left Dawson feeling sick to his stomach. In January, she turned 18, but as Beer says, her parents were about the relationship they stopped short of throwing her out of the house. By then, Amanda didn't care what they thought, or at least that's what she always told Dawson. Sometimes, after yet another bitter argument with her parents, she would sneak out her bedroom window in the middle of the night and strike out for the garage. Often, he would be waiting for, for her, but sometimes he'd awaken to her nudging him as she joined him on the mat. He'd unroll on the floor of the garage office. They'd wander down to the creek, and Dawson would slip his arm around her while they sat on one of the low-slung branches of an ancient live oak in the moonlight as the mullets were jumping. Amanda would rehash her arguments with her parents, sometimes with a squeaking voice and sorry, a quaking voice, and always careful to protect his feelings. He loved her for that, but he knew exactly <coughs> how her parents failed about him. One evening, while tears spilled from beneath her lids, after yet another argument, he gently suggested that it might be better for her if they stopped seeing each other. Is that what you want? she whispered, her voice ragged. He pulled her close, slipping his arms around her. I don't, I just want you to be happy, he whispered. She'd lean into him then, resting her head on his shoulders as he held her. He'd never hate himself more for being a coal, being born a coal. I'm the happiest when I'm with you, she said, finally. She finally murmured. Later that night, they made love for the first time. And for the next two decades and beyond, he carried those words and memories of that night inside him, knowing that she had been speaking for them both. After landing in Charlotte, Dawson flung his double bag and suitcase over his shoulder and walked through the terminal, barely registering the activity around him as he sifted through memories of his final summer with Amanda. That spring, she received a notice of an acceptance to Duke, 
a dream of hers since she's been a little girl. The spectator, the specter of her departure, coupled with the isolation from her, her parents and friends, only intensified their desire to pass as much people, as much time together as possible. They spent hours at the beach and took her long drives by the radio blasting. Only, they simply hung around Tuck's garage. They swore little would change after she left. Either he'd drive to Durham or she'd come back to visit. Amanda had no doubt that they'd find a way to somehow make it work. Her parents, however, had other plans on Saturday morning in August, a little more than a week before she was supposed to leave for Durham. They cornered her before she was able to escape the house. Her mom did all the talking, though she knew her father stood firmly in agreement. This has gone on long enough, her mother began, and in a voice that was surprisingly calm. Hmm. She told Amanda that if she continued to see Dawson, she would have to move out of the house in September and start paying her own bills. They wouldn't pay for her to attend college, either. Why should we waste time? Why should we waste money on college when you're throwing your life away? When Amanda stared, started to protest, her mother talked right over her. He'll drag you down, Amanda. But right now, you're too young to understand that. So if you want the freedom of being an adult, you'll also have to assume the responsibilities. Ruin your life by the things Dawson. We're not going to stop you. But we're not going to be able to help you either. <laughs> Amanda ran straight out of the house. Her only thought to find Dawson. By the time she reached the garage, she was crying so hard she couldn't speak. Dawson held her close. Letting bits and pieces of the story trickle out as she sobbed, finally as her sobs finally subsided. Subsided. We'll move in together, she said. Her cheeks still damp. Where? He asked her. Here, in the garage. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Dawson remained silent, studying, studying the floor. You need to go to college. He finally told her, I don't care. I'm on college, Amanda said. Presently, I care about you. He let his arms fall to his sides. I care about you, too. That's why I can't take this from you, he said. She shook her head, bewildered. You're not. It's my parents. It's because of me, and we both know it. He kicked at the door. If you have someone, you're supposed to let them go, right? For the first time, her eyes flashed as if they came back. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. Is that what you think this is? Some sort of cliche? She grabbed his arm, her fingers digging into him. We're not cliche, she said. Find a way to make it work. I can get a job as a waitress or whatever, and we can rent a place. He kept his voice calm, willing it not to break. How? You think my dad is going to stop what he's doing? I can move somewhere else. Where? With what? I have nothing. Don't you understand that? 
he let out the words hang. And then she didn't answer. He finally went on. I'm just trying to be realistic. This is your life we're talking about. I can't be part of it anymore. What are you saying? I'm saying your parents are right. You don't mean that. And her voice, he heard something almost like fear. Though he yearned to hold her, he took a deliberate step backwards. Go home, he said. She moved towards him, tossing him. No, he snapped, taking a quick step back. You're not listening. It's over, okay? You tried. It doesn't. It didn't work. Life moves on. Her expressions turned to Lexi, almost lifeless. So that's it. Instead of answering, he forced himself to turn away and work toward the garage. He knew that if he so much as glanced at her, he'd change his mind, and he couldn't do that to her. He wouldn't do that to her. He ducked. Open her the fast back, refusing to let her see his tears. When he, when she finally left, Dawson stood there, the dusty concrete floor next to his car, laying there for hours until the tuck came out. Took a seat beside him for a long time. He was silent. You end it, Tuck said. I had to. Dawson could barely speak. Yep, he nodded. Heard that too. The sun was climbing high overhead, blanketing everything that was in the garage with the stillness that fit almost like death. Then I do the right thing. Tuck reached in his back pocket and pulled out a cigarette by the time before he could answer. Tapped out a ca camel. I don't know. I don't know. Put a lot of magic between you. Ain't no denying that. And magic makes forgetting harder. Tuck patted him on the back and got up to leave. It was more than he ever said to Dawson about Amanda. As he walked away, Dawson squinted. squinted into the sunlight, and the tears started again. He knew that Amanda would always be the very best part of him, the self he could always long to know. What he didn't know was that he would not see or speak to her again. The following Amanda moved into the dorms at Duke University, and a month after that, Dawson was arrested. He spent the next four months behind bars. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's podcast, and I'll see you all next time. Bye!